be seated. Imagine you stand on the edge of a cliff. You take notice of the great expanse before you, the great mountains which tower toward the sky, so high that no vegetation can grow. They are simply capped by stone and dirt. They stretch into the valley where organisms are born and change. You see the trees and grass, the flowers and thorns. They provide for the creatures who live there the ox and the bird, the wolf and the worm. Yet nothing compares to the grand finale, humanity. The great intricacies of a person who knows and wills and loves. Every molecule working together like an instrument in a symphony, each birth amplifying the melody and declaring the glory of the composer. All of this creation was not born of its own will, but by a grand maker, brought forth into existence by a creator who wanted it there. Spoiled only by its own broken love, humanity loved the made instead of the maker, the created instead of the creator. Humanity and creation itself became subject to frustration and in bondage to decay. The great garden which once teemed with life became wild. What was once a haven of peace became a dangerous jungle. But creator would enter creation. He who sustains life would now interrupt it. The same word which composed this song would now become part of it, moving the dynamic to an ever-growing crescendo he would trim back the vines, rip away the weeds, burn the chaff. Here, he would restore that garden. He would make his sacred space. He would invite us home. This is restoration. Well, good morning again. Today is the fifth Sunday of the month, which means our uh, kids' own kids, our elementary school kids, are joining us in the big room today. Uh, what's up, guys? Kids' own kids? I see a couple of you. There's one. There's one back there. I see one. <laughs> you guys get your activity packets? Did your parents grab you your, your coloring pages and stuff? If they did, not be like, hey, mom, dad, go to the check-in, get my coloring stuff, right? In case this guy's boring. <laughs> <laughs> you guys excited for Halloween? Yeah? This is a question for everybody, not just the kids. You can be excited for Halloween too, right? What about, uh, what about Thanksgiving? You guys excited for Thanksgiving coming up? Oh, yeah. Some of you guys are like me. Thanksgiving's my favorite. My family thinks I'm weird, but I like food. I like family. I like football. So, How about Christmas? Anybody like Christmas coming up? It's coming up soon. Sooner than we like. I just give everyone like a panic attack. <laughs> Right? Christmas is good. Sarah and I actually just got back from celebrating our own holiday last week. October 18th is a holiday in our family. That's our wedding anniversary. We got married 20 years ago, uh, October 18th. So thanks. Yeah, our marriage isn't a teenager anymore. So it's ready to go to college. 
We, uh, we even got to go on a cool vacation. We went to South Carolina. We got to see uh, Savannah, Georgia. We'd never been to Savannah before. That was a, a bucket list trip for us. We saw a bunch of cool historical stuff. Uh, got to, to walk in the ocean uh, a little bit. We uh, we've got to eat lots and lots of good food. That's what vacation is, right? Lots, just eating good food in a, diff- a different place than usual. We took a trolley tour around Savannah. Um, we, we walked on the boardwalk in Myrtle Beach. We visited a, a plantation just outside of Charleston. And the whole time, I just couldn't stop talking about the trees. I know that's weird. I like, somehow I've become that guy, but like, I couldn't stop talking about how the cool the trees were, like with all the Spanish moss hanging and just like huge trees everywhere. And then also like Myrtle Beach was full of palm trees. And like, I don't know, I've never been out there. Like I've been to Florida and stuff, which makes sense because it feels tropical. I didn't know that South Carolina was like the palm tree capital of the country. There's so many palm trees out there. And so I couldn't stop talking about the trees all the time that I kept, I kept seeing. And we went to, we went to the, uh, the plantation. They had uh, these gardens at the plantation. It's really, really cool uh, gardens. And, and it's not like, like when you think of a garden, you, maybe you think of like a vegetable garden or, or a garden with lots of flowers and stuff. And the gardens uh, at the plantation weren't really like that. They were like almost like sad, like, like almost gothic with all the, all the big trees with the drooping Spanish moss. That we had. There was actually an alligator in the water, like walking around the garden. It was like, like 10 feet away from me. Um, so that was scary, but uh, it was it was really pretty and and not and pretty in like just kind of a sad way almost if that makes any sense. We even found this little bench uh, that had been set between two of these huge trees when the trees were small and the bench didn't have any supports of its own. The trees had just grown around the bench. And I brought a picture uh, of Sarah sitting on on the bench there. She's so small. Look how tiny she is. Yeah, so it was just really cool um, and it's different than any garden that I've ever really seen before. And as we you know, kind of get close to wrapping up our, our Salvation Spaces series where we've been explaining theology concepts in terms of real spaces, like you saw in the, in the bumper video before the sermon, today's space is a garden. I want to talk about a garden today because that's where God started everything, right? He, in our world, he started it with a garden that's called Eden. Uh, Genesis chapter 2 verse 8 says that God planted a garden in the east in Eden and there he put the man that he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So life as we know it started in a garden where everything was perfect. There was plenty of food to eat. There was meaningful work to do. Adam and Eve were in relationship with God, in relationship with each other. And there was no guilt and no shame and no fear. And in the middle of it all, there was a tree. Now, kids from Kid Zone, I want you to see how strong I am. Lift a tree. In the, middle, in the middle of the garden, there was a tree, right? It was probably prettier than that tree. But there was a tree. And there were a couple of trees, the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God told them, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. So notice that there was only one tree that God commanded them not to eat from. The tree of life was fair game. The tree of life was never off limits to Adam and Eve. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was the one that there was a restriction placed on. The tree that would bring life was a gift from God. Free access to the tree that would bring them life. But instead, they chose to eat from the tree that God said, this will bring you death. And they ate from that tree instead of the tree that brings life. And I can't say God didn't warn them. 
But they disobeyed God. They ate from the tree anyway. And, and it opened their eyes, opened their eyes to sin. They experienced guilt and shame and fear. And eventually, just like God said, death. And it all started in a garden. Before everything went wrong, a garden. So now look with me at the end of the story. The end of the Bible. The very last chapter in Revelation chapter 22 starts this way. Revelation 22, 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. So this sounds familiar. This time it's a city, but it's kind of like a garden city, right? There's a river flowing through it. There's meaningful work to do. There's no more curse of sin or death. And in the middle of it all, there's a tree. In fact, the tree of life is all over the place. It's on both sides of the river. Leaves for the healing of the nations. Plenty of fruit yielded all over the place all the time. Plenty for everybody. Uh, there's a tree in the middle of it all. The Bible starts with a tree, the tree of life in a perfect garden. The Bible ends with the tree of life in a perfect garden city. But what about now? Where's our tree of life? Flip back to Genesis. Go back to the beginning with me. At the end of chapter 3, after the fall, after the curse that sin brought on creation, God says this in verse 22 of Genesis chapter 3. He says, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So look, the tree of life was there in the garden at the beginning, and Adam and Eve were allowed to eat the fruit from that tree. And, and it'll be in the garden city at the end producing fruit for us to eat all the time. There was a tree in our past, there will be a tree in our future, but there's no tree for us now. Now, we live between the trees. We live in a place where there is sin and suffering and disease and brokenness and fear and imperfection and death. And God blocked our access to the tree of life. Because, because this, this, this broken life, this broken world, this is not what God had in mind. And it would be a tragedy for us to live like this forever. It would be a tragedy for me to, to, to be able to take fruit from the tree of life and live in this broken, sinful self forever. That's why God blocked our access. This life isn't the way it's supposed to be. 
Living forever in a world like this is not God's plan for us. But we've been talking throughout this Roman study, God does have a plan for us. Um, A plan that includes a, a substitute sacrifice to pay for our sin, justification to make us innocent again, regeneration to renew us, sanctification to make us holy, and at the end of God's plan for us is the concept of redemption. Fully renewing us to the way we were meant to be in the garden at the beginning. And so here's the question, because that's something that's coming. That's future, right? God didn't do that for me or for you yet. I mean, I guess I can't speak for you, but God didn't do it for me. I'm not the way I was supposed to be in the garden, and I'm guessing probably you aren't either. Um, So the question is, how do we live between the trees? How do we live when this is our reality, right? And and for that, I want to pick up Romans. You know, we've been walking through Romans, and and I want to pick up in Romans chapter 8, And I want to look at that question. How are we supposed to live between the trees? So starting in verse 18 of Romans 8, Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings, what we're going through right now, are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. So Paul doesn't try to hide the fact that between the trees there's suffering. Even for believers, becoming a Christian doesn't magically make all your problems go away. I I mean, I hate to break it to you. Christians still struggle with sin and with sickness and with pain, addiction, poverty. And and the more we identify with Jesus, the the one who came to to overturn the values of the world, the the more we share in the rejection that happened to him, the more we share in the the difficulties that Jesus faced. And so you might even say that that Christians have the potential to suffer even more uh, because we're we're called to take this stand, you know, and, and, and live the Jesus way when the world doesn't understand it at all, right? When you refuse to go along living the way the world expects, the world turns on you, right? We, we see that. We've experienced that at times. And, and Paul's point here is not that, that our suffering isn't real. He's not saying, like, your suffering's a mirage. It's all just fake. His point is, compared to what's coming for us in the future, our suffering right now just isn't a big deal. It's limited to this space between the trees, this blip in time where suffering can happen. It won't last forever. And it doesn't compare to the glory that God has in store for us. And so Paul continues in Romans 8, in verse 20, says, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Now, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So we're not the only ones living between the trees. We're not the only ones waiting for God to finish what he started. Paul says all creation has been waiting for redemption. See, redemption isn't just personal. It's not just between you and God. It's also not just corporate. It's not just between humanity 
and God. Redemption is global. The whole world has been groaning in frustration at the brokenness that sin caused. Now, this word frustration, it means the inability for something to fulfill its intended purpose. So the entire created world has failed to fulfill its intended purpose because of sin. Because of our sin, the world is not what God intended it to be. So so no matter how hard we try to save the earth, it's outside our power to fully control. Creation was subjected to frustration when God explained the results of sin in the curse. Uh, In Genesis 3, he says, he's... God says, cursed is the ground because of you, because of Adam and Eve. Through painful toil, you will eat from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. In Hebrew, ground and earth, it's the same word. Cursed is the earth because of you. The curse of our sin didn't just affect us. It affected the whole creation. The earth itself was cursed because of Adam and Eve's disobedience. That might help to explain why, despite all of our progress in technology, in civilization in general, the world doesn't seem to be getting much better. Our, our, methods, our, our better methods for growing food haven't eliminated hunger in the world. There's more poverty in the world than ever before right at this moment. Just like people, the world can't fix itself. We can't fix it either, not completely, because the main problem isn't a physical one. God says the main problem is a spiritual one. It's tied to our sin nature. God included creation in the consequences of the fall. And and when he did that, he bound together the fate of the created world, the world that he made, and the fate of humanity, the people that he made. We're bound together. And God one day will set the world free from from the decay that affects everything after we broke the world with our sin. The frustration that creation is experiencing, it's not its own fault, Paul says. Plants and animals, the water, sky, the earth, they're all waiting for God to make things right again. And since it was our sin that broke creation in the first place, it will be our redemption that fixes it. Paul chose this this really interesting way to describe how creation has been waiting. He compared it to the pains of childbirth, which, by the way, was another consequence of the fall, increasing the pain of childbirth, right? And birth pain is a metaphor for the kind of suffering that has a joyful outcome, right? It's not death pain. It's a pain that indicates that there's new life coming. There's new life on the way at the end of this pain. Our present sufferings and the broken state of the world that we live in are not the desperate cries of an empty universe. They're the birth pains of the new life God promised us. We hope for what we don't have yet. We hope for what God promised us. We wait for it. We wait for it eagerly. We wait for it patiently. And so what do we do while we wait? We live this life between the trees, and and we're waiting. What do we do? Well, Romans 8, if we keep going, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. 
And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So we're here between the trees. We're waiting for the, the hope. Uh, it, we're waiting with hope for the redemption that God has promised us, even while we suffer. But we're not here alone. God doesn't stay in the garden in the past. And God isn't beyond this future tree just waiting for us to get there, waiting for us to you know, earn our way in. God joined us between the trees. While we're waiting for our redemption, God has given us his son to show us the way to live. God has given us his spirit to help us pray when we're weak. Have you ever felt like you needed to pray, but you didn't know how to start? didn't know what to say, didn't even know what to pray about. I have. I, I feel that way all the time. I feel that way a lot. Because here between the trees, it can be really hard to see God. It can be really hard to see where God's working, what God's doing, where is, where is the hope? Back in the garden, Adam and Eve walked with God. They talked with him. They saw him with their eyes every day. In the garden city in the future, it says God's presence will be there lighting the way. We won't even need the sun somehow because God's going to be real bright. And, and so God's with us all the time. But right now, it feels like God's far. It feels like God is far away. And that's not true, but it feels like that. And that's why Paul says that the Spirit is there for us in our weakness. The Spirit is there to help us pray when God feels far away. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, you remember this? He's, they said, what are we supposed to do? And Jesus gives them this model prayer. He taught them to focus on praying for God's will to be done. He said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You remember that part? So, so our insight into thy will, you know, thy will be done, our insight into what God actually wants for us, into what God actually wants for the world, is fairly limited, honestly. I mean, like, if we're honest, in a lot of situations, we're kind of confused about what we should be praying for. I don't really know what God wants in this situation. I mean, I can guess. You know, the more, the, the more I'm in the Bible, the more I know God, the more I start to kind of feel like I know what he might want in this situation. But it still feels like guesswork a lot. And, and you know, Jesus also taught about prayer in this parable that he told about the Pharisee and the tax collector, right? The one where the, the first guy uh, prayed just to thank God that he was doing such a good job, like he, that he was so much better than the other guy. What a good prayer, right? I'm so much better than this guy, God, thank you. And the other guy just prayed like that he was so like bad. <laughs> like, like, God, I need help is basically his prayer, right? Because I'm not doing very well. And, and Jesus taught that like that guy's prayer was the one God heard and God listened to because it was honest. It was, it was sincere, right? Um, and so Jesus taught that, that you know, sincerity and humility is, is what God's looking for in our prayers. He's, he's not looking for some kind of like magic big words and he's not looking for like virtue signaling, right? For us to, to list all the things that we're doing right compared to everybody else. God doesn't need 
to hear that God wants sincerity and honesty uh, in our weakness and, and our confusion and our speechlessness. Um, and so we bring all that stuff to him in prayer, just bumbling around like, uh, like a bunch of idiots, right? And, and that's where God says the spirit is with you. When you pray and you get done and you're like, that was terrible. And, and some, something happens in that moment of honesty and sincerity that the Holy Spirit joins with your prayers and the Holy Spirit, it, you know, it talks about with wordless groans, the Holy Spirit lifts our prayers up to God, that you're not alone when you pray. So living between the trees, it, it's learning to rely on God for what we need. Sometimes even relying on God to show us what we should be asking for, what we should be hoping for. Sometimes we don't even know. We don't even know what we need. And we're like, I don't know. God, can you show me? I feel like that's really good news, don't you? That, that, you, that our inability to pray as well as we want to does not prevent God from working in our life the way he wants to. I mean, I feel like that's like really good news. <laughs> that like, I don't have to have this perfect prayer. Like God's like, ah, oh, you didn't say the right words. You don't get that. Like, no blessings for you, right? Like, that, that the Holy Spirit joins with our prayers and, like, kind of, like, like, with the red pen, like, fixes the grammar and stuff and, like, marks it all up. And God's like, oh, yeah, I understand it now. And, and so, like, like it make, the Holy Spirit makes sense of my prayer, right? I, that's good news to me. And so while we live here between the trees, we rely on God by praying. Um, we even sometimes rely on God by, like, praying for us to himself, right? That the Holy Spirit helps us to pray. And we also rely on God by trusting that he's gonna use whatever happens to us for good. Uh, Romans 8, 28 is a fairly well-known verse, actually, out of Romans 8. It's one of the better-known ones. And it's also one of the more misunderstood verses, I feel like, in, in all of the Bible. Um, because Romans 8, 28 is not promising that God will not let anything bad happen to you. I've heard people say that, right? It's not promising that good things will always happen to good people. I've, I've heard people say that. Uh, it also doesn't mean that everything that happens to you is good. I've heard people say that, right? That, that in the midst of some, someone going through something horrible and tragic, like, oh, well, God will use this for your good. That's not helpful. Um, I mean, it, it's tr true, but in that moment, it's not, it's not super helpful. When we call, like, there's evil things that happen in the world, right? We're on the same page with that. Bad things happen to people. Bad things even happen to good people. And when, when Christians, even well-meaning Christians, when we call evil things good, we sound dumb. Like, we should kind of stop that. Like, evil things are evil. Like, bad things are bad. They happen. Um, and so that's not what this is saying. Paul isn't saying like, oh, even though the, even the bad things, they're actually good. No, they're actually bad. Um, but this whole section of Romans is, is talking about the redemption that God has in store for us in the future. And I, and I think we get sideways on verse 28 because we don't, we don't really understand what Paul means by good. I think that's the word. That's the word, right? Because all, all this whole section, Paul's talking about the redemption that's coming for us in the future. And that's what Paul means here, too, by good. The good is the, the final glory that God has planned for us. The good is that, that you know, God will use all the things that happen to us between the trees to prepare us for redemption. Now, it's true that God loves to bless us. 
Uh, it's true, you know, the, the Bible says that, that God loves to give good gifts to his children. Those are both true. But the greatest good that God has for you is not some kind of material blessing. It's not the new car. That's not the greatest good God has for you. The greatest good God has for you and for me is spiritual. And as we've seen in Romans already, God, God uses suffering to build character in us, to make us more like Jesus, to prepare us for glory. And ver this verse, verse 28, it doesn't promise that every difficult circumstance will lead us to something good in this life. That, I think, is the most common thing. Like, oh, God promises that he's going to use that bad thing and, and bring something good to your life. That's not what he promises. The good that God has in mind might not involve this life at all. The good that God promises in this verse, that he will use all things for your good, might not be experienced until we're finished, until our redemption is, is complete. I, I don't always like the way God chooses to teach me things, right? Sometimes the good God has in store for me doesn't feel good at all. Doesn't mean it's not good. But, but it doesn't always feel good. I don't, I don't like the way that God chooses to teach me things. You ever pray, you ever pray for patience? Try it sometime. You're not going to like it very much. So verse 28 doesn't promise that God is going to use all our circumstances to give us these good things in life. What, what does it mean? Basically, Romans 8, 28, God is promising that nothing will touch your life that's out of his control. That's it. Nothing will touch your life that's out of his control. Everything we do, everything we say, everything people do to us or say about us, every experience we have, all of those things are used by God for our good. Now, to, let's be clear. Not all of those things are caused by God. There's a difference. But all of those things that happen to us are used by God for our good. A plan that started when, when he chose to enter into a relationship with us, even after we disobeyed him, says he, he foreknew us. That's what that means. It continued when he chose to give us a future that, that we didn't deserve, right? He predestined us. He called us to a better way of living. He justified us by paying the penalty that our sin deserved to declare us innocent. And it all leads to the last step in, in verse 30. He glorified us, which is really weird to say because clearly it, it hasn't happened yet. I don't feel glorified. I don't know about you, but it's, it says he glorified us. The other stuff on the list is past. God foreknew us. He did that. God predestined us. He did that in the past. He called us. He justified us. Those are things that have happened to us, but we haven't been glorified yet. We're, we're still living here between the trees. That, that's in the future. Um, but Paul puts it in the past tense because as far as God is concerned, it is in the past. God decided to do it, so it's done. See, just because we live between the trees, just because we haven't experienced it yet, doesn't mean it's uncertain. It won't always be this way. It's temporary. God's promised it. It is certain it will happen. So tomorrow's Halloween. Talked to the kids earlier. They're all sleeping now. But tomorrow's Halloween. I want to talk to you guys again. I know there's a lot of people, kids and adults, who list Halloween as their favorite holiday of the year. 
Um, and I think one of the things that makes Halloween so much fun is the costumes. So I thought it might be fun for, I mean, I did do it for the kids, but I mean, honestly, you guys too. I don't know how small the pictures are going to be. I, I thought it might be fun to show some of, some of the costumes that I've worn over the years, right? Because um, costumes are fun. We use our creativity. We put together a, a costume we can, where we can pretend to be someone we're not, something we're not just for a little while. Um, and so here's, here's some of the costumes I've tried over the years. Um, in college, I was a jester uh, in a madrigal stage show that we did during the holiday season every year, every Christmas is my acting career um, back years ago. <laughs> Look how skinny I am. <laughs> Um, I was also in a Wizard of Oz musical when I was in college. I played the Tin Man. Um, that face paint. I did have a, a nice big long goatee that got sprayed silver every single night for every performance. Um, here at the Northwest Halloween Experience, I've been Luigi. Um, that's Travis White, the chairman of our elders. That's Mario, by the way. <laughs> He's my brother-in-law. Um, I've been Luigi. I've been part of a family of Disney villains. I was Captain Hook that year. By the way, quick story, just to embarrass um, Diane Owens. Um, so this year at Halloween, I came in, and, uh, and Diane came up to me, and uh, she liked my costume, and she was like, she's like, oh, you even went so far as to stuff your, your shirt with a pillow, and she like tapped my stomach, and I'm like, nope, that's all me. <laughs> There's no pillow there. <laughs> it's like my favorite story ever. It's not in my notes, but I saw the picture and I had to tell it. Um, my fa- probably my favorite of the was I was Uncle Sam uh, and Sarah was Rosie the Riveter. I really liked that one. That was a fun one. Um, when I was a kid, though, I, I did bring one picture of, of when I was a kid. I just wanted to be the same thing every year. I just wanted to be a vampire when I was a kid. Um, I was a, I don't know why. But I loved that vampire costume. That's my little brother, Superman, there. Um, I don't think they're related to each other, Superman conquering vampires. But I, I just love that vampire costume. And I know, I know that sometimes Halloween makes Christians uncomfortable uh, because it, it seems to celebrate death and, and the demonic. But I've started to see Halloween kind of differently. Because one of the things I think that is really powerful about Halloween um, and, and really about the spooky season in general, all the stuff related, all the decorations and the, the lead up to Halloween, is that in October, death is kind of a joke, isn't it? Like it's an amusement more than a, more than a fear. We make it seem ridiculous. We, we turn our yards into cemeteries and we let our, our kids, we've got like tiny vampires and zombies and ghosts running all around, right? And, and for Christians, what's true on Halloween is true all the time. Death just isn't a big deal anymore. Death lost its power. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, imperishable. And we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? So even though we still experience death while we live between the trees, we don't have to be afraid of it anymore. Death has lost its power when it was swallowed up 
in victory. So Halloween between the trees can be a reminder of the hope we have in Jesus, the certain future that's coming for us where death is a joke. So while we wait for our redemption, we pray with the help of the Spirit. We trust in God's plan for us that that God will use the things that happen to us for good and and we lean in to the future because we know what's coming. So we lean into it. It's true that our time between the trees is temporary, that someday we'll find ourselves in the garden city, surrounded by the tree of life. If that's true, then we should live now like we believe it's true. So what I mean is this. In the first garden, Adam and Eve sinned. They triggered a curse that warped creation, that, that banished us from paradise. But God started a process that will redeem his whole creation. And then God invited us to participate in the process. The curse in Genesis 3, it tells us the way the world is because of sin. It tells us the cause. We look around, we're like, yes, that resonates with me. I see that that's true. I look around at the world and I see it, this can't be what God intended for it to be. It's broken and, and, it's, and there's death and there's disease and it's wrong. It shouldn't happen like that. And God's like, you're right. It shouldn't happen like that. So don't perpetuate it. The curse in Genesis 3 is not a prescription for how we are supposed to act. It's a description of the way the world has been affected by sin. But through Jesus, we don't have to live in a world like that. We can lean into a future that's different. We can live differently now between the trees because we know what's coming in the future. We don't have to live out the reality of the curse in Genesis 3. It tells us the way the world is, not the way the world should be. And through Jesus, God God has called us to live in a way that reverses the curse and sets us not back into the past, into that garden, but, but on a path into the future, to the garden city where the tree of life is again readily available for all of us to live and live and live and live and live. Redemption is our future. So we should live like it. Sin is defeated. Death is a joke. Life is forever. Let's pray. God, this is amazing. We don't deserve this at all. It feels like we messed up and we got what we deserved. We, we, we don't deserve the tree of life. We deserve to be banished. But man, you're so good. And constantly you keep giving us things we don't deserve. And so, Father, your promise of a future where we have access again to life upon life upon life is almost too good to be true. So, God, I just pray that you help us to believe it this morning. Help us to believe it so strongly that we live like it's true. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So the promise of redemption means there's something better ahead of us than what we're experiencing right now between the trees. And and it's only possible because Jesus conquered sin and death on the cross. The cross is the bridge between the trees. It's the only way we can access the tree of life again. In John 14, Jesus describes what life will be like when there's no longer, uh, when, when, when we're no longer living between the trees. 
right? Uh, Jesus says that, that in his father's house, there's many rooms, that he's going there to prepare a place for us, that he's, he's coming back to bring us there to be with him. Uh, and and, and G- when Jesus finishes saying that, Thomas uh, asked him, how are we going to know? How are we going to know the way to get to that place? Like, I don't know how to get there. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The tree of life is in your future through Jesus. And it's through what his death and his resurrection on the cross that has opened the door and made it possible for us to have the redemption that God has in store. So we take communion every week as a reminder that we need Jesus. We, we need him to help us pray. We need him to work things for our good. We need him to, to bring us into the future that he has promised us. So when the, the trays pass by this morning, take a set of cups and hold on to them and, and then we'll take communion together. His body given for us and his blood poured out for our sin. Amen. So originally this was going to be the, the last message in the salvation series through Romans, but we shuffled some things around. So next week, Steve is going to be back uh, to, to talk a little bit about uh, our adoption into God's family and what that means for us. So enjoy your Halloween. Uh, hope to see you here at our big celebration tomorrow night. Uh, why don't we stand and sing one last song as we're dismissed this morning. Scarlet sins had a crimson